are bringing you this bonus uh, episode on a commemoration, an unfortunate commemoration in this case, for the one-year anniversary of the uh, Russian Federation under Vladimir Putin's invasion of its sovereign neighbor state of Ukraine. Dad, why are we broaching our habitual reserve on matters of current events in this case, as in fact we did a year ago with our first response to this outbreak of war? Well, I think there's there's two chief reasons that we should talk about theologically. Uh, the first concerns the Russian Orthodox blessing of Putin's invasion as a holy war. I mean, that rhetoric is now increasingly uh, throughout the Russian propaganda apparatus. And, of course, that harms the reputation of Christianity and deeply damages what's left of the ecumenical movement. Uh, that's one reason. Another reason is, in my way of thinking, um, uncanny parallels uh, between the America firstism of the 1930s that wanted to look the other way out of secret sympathy with Nazism and some of the more gathering voices among religious conservatives in the West calling into question uh, European-American support for Ukrainian self-defense. And I want to talk historically about that, but also, above all, theologically. Okay. Well, I think we should start by um, hearing voices of opposition to this war within Eastern Orthodoxy itself. Um, so, you know, Westerner, the Western Church, Catholic and Protestant alike, have gone through a long process of trying to figure out how to achieve a correct separation of church and state. And we've not done a great job of that, <laughs> um, even uh, in the, the U.S., where it is constitutionally enshrined. There have been better and worse um, versions of the separation of the two. Um, I think, Dad, you and I now would consider it an absolute necessity, above all, for the integrity of the gospel and the gospel's community of the church to separate church from state. But historically, we can say this has been a long process and by no means a, a completely successful one among in, in Western nations with, you know, Western, uh, you know, Latin, Latin-rooted um, Christian churches. But for a lot of historical reasons, that process is even longer delayed and in some places not even really begun in Eastern Orthodox churches. And we see this above all now in the Russian Orthodox Church and the extremely cozy relationship between Putin as the um, sovereign of the Russian Federation and the Patriarch of Moscow, who is the head of the Russian church and in, and in many ways uh, claims to be the spokesman for all true and genuine orthodoxy. So giving um, Eastern Orthodox theologians who oppose this a chance to articulate why this disentanglement is necessary for the integrity of, of the church and the gospel, I think is is something we can do to lift up and support them. Why don't you tell us about that? What, what, what does world orthodoxy say about the so-called Russian world theology? Right. So this this um, statement came out in, let me see, in, in March of last year, so very soon after this invasion took place. But I know that the, the danger of this uh, ideology, the Russian world, that's what it's called, the, the Russian world teaching or Russian world ideology had been on the horizon of concern for, for quite a long time. And uh, we'll, we'll, of course, put a link to this in the show notes. It has over 1,500 signatories right now. But what this declaration, I, I think we could actually call it a sort of status confessionis. Um, 
uh, calling out within world orthodoxy of a false teaching that has become dangerously powerful and central in one of the orthodox churches. Um, it is, they call it an orthodox ethnophilatist religious fundamentalism that is totalitarian in character, that is the principal justification for the invasion of Ukraine, and uh, assumes a symphony between the head of the church and the head of the state. Um, interestingly, already back in the 19th century, orthodoxy condemned um, ethnicity as the basis for church life. Um, this is an ongoing issue. Again, we in the West know this is also um, an ongoing problem for us as well. But the particular form this takes is the veneration of holy Russia. And in, in this way of thinking, holy Russia is this highly romanticized fiction of the Russian Orthodox Church, its satellite churches and ethnicities, um, the common language of Russian this glosses over a lot of actual history and actual difference. Um, but it takes on this very intense, we could call it messianic character, that holy Russia being not just orthodoxy being the true church. And I mean, this is intrinsic to most churches' claims. You know, uh, Orthodoxy claims to be the true and original church that came from the apostles, uh, apart from, you know, you uh, uh, Western defections and errors with, you know, the Nicene Creed and all that. But but this is even within Orthodoxy, this is saying specifically Russian Orthodoxy and Russian culture and Russian language are wholly set apart. In a sense, you could say they've, almost, they've displaced Israel, superseded Israel as being the true and holy culture. And therefore, there is a messianic call to transform the entire earth in its image. Therefore, it's powerfully colonialist and uh, totalitarian, ultimately, in its designs. And it can be disguised as being for the good, because wouldn't you rather be part of the, the true culture and the true church and the, the holiest way of being than whatever shoddy version you're in right now? Yeah, and what you're saying, of course, this description is what the 1,500 signatories of this status confessionis are attacking or criticizing as heresy, right? Not just, yeah, they call it a heresy and a vile and indefensible teaching, very strong language. So I'm, I'm wow. just going to talk us through here the, the chief points they make. Um, and they begin each point with a quotation from scripture. So the first point um, my kingdom is not of this world. So they positively affirm under this point that the purpose of history is the kingdom of God, but that God alone is the one who brings about the kingdom. And therefore, the corresponding rejection is, we therefore condemn as non-Orthodox and reject any teaching that seeks to replace the kingdom of God as seen by the prophets, proclaimed and inaugurated by Christ, taught by the apostles, received as wisdom by the church, set forth as dogma by the fathers, and experienced in every holy liturgy with the kingdom of this world, be that holy Rus, sacred Byzantium, or any other earthly kingdom, thereby usurping Christ's own authority to deliver the kingdom to God the Father. Point two, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. So uh, they affirm the ultimate authority of the Lord Jesus and that uh, earthly rulers are only there to um, protect calm and ordered lives for people. Therefore, they condemn as non-Orthodox and reject any forms of government that deify the state, theocracy, or and absorb the church, thereby depriving the church of its freedom to stand prophetically against all injustice and 
And they also specifically by name rebuke Caesaropapism, uh, which is the term that's often used to describe the particular form of state church alliance in Eastern Christianity. Yeah, well, no, no, Sarah, that sounds to me like the two kingdoms doctrine properly understood. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I, I, uh, two kingdoms, I think, is, is the particular Lutheran way of talking about what is the proper division or separation between church and state. And yes, so I think we can really affirm these Orthodox theologians who are finding in their own way and coping with their own history the way to start or to articulate that more powerfully. So, yeah, that's really good. Point three, there is no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. So they affirm that the division of humanity, not distinction, but division based on things like race, religion, ethnicity, and any other secondary feature is part of sinfulness. And in particular, that God's love is distributed to all persons who are created and born equally in the image of and likeness of God. This is um, familiar language for me of affirming personal as the central theological anthropology of Eastern Orthodoxy, rather than a collectivist uh, look at humanity based on um, belonging to a particular group. Any kind of essentialism, yeah, right. Right. The only essentialism that matters is you are a human made in God's image, right? Um, We therefore condemn as non-Orthodox and reject any teaching that attributes divine establishment or authority, special sacredness or purity to any single local, national, or ethnic identity, or characterizes any particular culture as special or divinely ordained, whether Greek, Romanian, Russian, Ukrainian, or any other. So there is no holy culture, there is no holy people in that national or ethnic sense. Yeah, the adjective Christian describes only the community of faith. Exactly, exactly. Uh, Then point four, Jesus teaching, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So they affirm that making war is an ultimate failure of love, uh, prosecuting an aggressive war because love of enemies is central to Jesus teaching. Therefore, they uh, condemn as non-Orthodox and reject uh, any teaching that encourages war, mistrust, hatred, violence condemn as non-Orthodox any teaching that demonizes or encourages the demonization of those that the state or society deems others, whether that is foreigners, political and religious dissenters, or any other stigmatized social minorities. We reject any Manichaean and Gnostic division that would elevate a holy Orthodox Eastern culture and its Orthodox peoples above a debased and immoral West. Uh, We will come back to this because um, the... the, uh, uh, vilification of the West is hugely important to Putin and this uh, holy uh, Russian world ideology. And may I simply comment here how important it is for us to feel nothing but sympathy with the Russian conscripts who are being sent wave after wave as cannon fodder to certain death uh, to fulfill these fantastic ambitions of the Russian world ideology. Um, This is just a tragedy beyond telling. And in the outcome of events, it's going to be a terrible tragedy for all the people of Russia. Yeah. And I think we should say that we should feel pity for them, even if they are brainwashed into believing what they're told. Because yes, they yeah. they are they are deceived, and you know they they should not participate in evil, obviously, but they are being lied to, and um, not everyone has the resource to resist a lie of this magnitude and brashness. Amen.
Okay, point uh, five from Jesus. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous but sinners. So they affirm that Christ calls us to care for the hurt, the needy, the sick, the suffering, the dying, and to seek justice, and that it is not enough only to pray for peace, but to make peace even at the cost of our own lives. We therefore condemn as non-Orthodox and reject any promotion of spiritual quietism among the faithful and clergy of the church from the highest patriarch down to the most humble layperson. We rebuke those who pray for peace while failing to actively make peace, whether out of fear or lack of faith. Love must be against what is against love. Yes, let's go on. Point six, if you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So we affirm that Jesus calls his disciples not only to know the truth, but to speak the truth. Therefore, using uh, jargony, propagandistic terms like special military operation, events or conflict, when what we have is a full-scale military invasion that has already resulted in numerous civilian and military deaths, and this was written almost a year ago, that is a lie. You call you call a spade a spade, right? That That's our uh, Heidelberg disputation connection here. You say the truth about what is going on. We therefore condemn as non-Orthodox and reject any teaching or action which refuses to speak the truth or actively suppresses the truth about evils that are perpetrated against the gospel of Christ in Ukraine. We utterly condemn all talk of fratricidal war, repetition of the sin of Cain, who killed his own brother out of envy, if it does not explicitly acknowledge the murderous intent and culpability of one party over another. And there is a reference to Revelation 3 there. So good for them for calling on the book of Revelation. Right. And, you know, the equality of us all in sin is not the same as inequality in guilt. The equality in sinfulness should never eclipse a discrimination between the perpetrator and the perpetrator's victim. And I think for most of the world, this is perfectly clear in this case. Who is who? So I think we could easily say every single Ukrainian person is a sinner and the Ukrainian culture, state, economy, whatever, may have been involved in all kinds of aspects of corruption and wrongdoing that in no way excuses a neighbor state from invading and murdering aggressively all the people within it. That is the the, the one has really nothing to do with the other. And then we now, the line there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then let me just read the conclusion. We declare that the truths that we have affirmed and the errors which we have condemned as non-Orthodox and rejected are founded on the gospel of Jesus Christ and the holy tradition of the Orthodox Christian faith. We call all who accept this declaration to be mindful of these theological principles and their decisions in church politics. We entreat all whom this declaration concerns to return to the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So amen. Good for them, and may they be heard. The Barman Declaration of Our Times. Yeah, yeah, very much so, very much so. And I'll also put in our notes, I I found two other uh, uh, essays by theologians that I thought were well worth considering. One is by Dmitryo Binsarovsky. He's a Ukrainian theologian on some misconceptions about Russia's war against Ukraine. Um, And I think we'll talk a little bit about this, but um, uh, particularly the... um, um, turning or uh, allowing um, uh, Americans allowing their own binaries to be projected over onto the Russia-Ukraine conflict and somehow seeing it as a mirror there and therefore an excuse to 
an excuse to excuse Russia for what it's doing. And then in addition, one by um, my good friend Cyril Hoveren, uh, who I, I got to know when we served together on the Lutheran Orthodox Dialogue. He talks again, his article is called, Is the Russian World Condemnable? He's referring again to this ideology. And he gives a little bit more of its its deeper history, and but particularly how it's manifested itself since the breakup of the Soviet Union. Uh, he's an, an excellent scholar, thinker, and human being, uh, well worth listening to on this topic. Great. Good resources for our listeners. Yeah, you know, Sarah, it's always perilous to make easy analogies with the past. And that begins with Putin's original claim that the invasion of Ukraine was for the purpose of denazification. Now, there is a tiny, tiny, tiny grain of truth in this. What is it? After Stalin's deliberate uh, uh, working of famine in Ukraine in two successive winters in 1932 and 1933, in order to break the back of the Kulak peasants' resistance to the collectivization of agriculture, this is called the Holodomor uh, in their language, this, this, this genocidal act of Stalin. After that, the Ukrainian people often welcomed the invading Nazis in 1941 as liberators. That's a fact of history. It's an understandable fact of history. A fact and from 1941, some, let's just say, also. A fact from 1941. And to their shame, a lot of Ukrainians collaborated uh, in Babi Yar and so forth in the uh, persecution of Jews. So that's the tiny grain of truth that the Ukrainians once upon a time had a sympathy with the Nazis from 1941. And let's just say that, this is not like a voluntary sympathy with the Nazis. This is Nazis as compared to Stalin's attempt to starve them to death. Right. So this highly fraught memory is the basis of Putin's outrageous lie about denazification as the pretext for the invasion. Now, what's different from the 1930s, of course, uh, is weapons of mass destruction and the threat of mutually assured destruction when a war gets out of control. We have to bear that in mind because it's at the heart of the dilemmas we are facing a year later. But I want to set this record straight very quickly on analogies with the past here. Uh, there are some very striking continuities, not only between Europe in the 1930s and today, but also between America in the 1930s and today. I have to confess, I just watched a PBS documentary called America and the Holocaust. And I knew about this intellectually, but watching all the video uh, in this documentary, I was distressed to see the appeal of Henry Ford, the industrialist, Charles Lindbergh, the great aviator. And truth be told, though it wasn't really highlighted in this documentary, Joseph Kennedy, father of JFK and RFK, who was ambassador to Great Britain at this time, all these guys were America firsters, and they were advocating isolationism, happily looking the other way uh, uh, 
from Hitler's crimes in Germany in the 30s against the Jews and political opponents, secretly sympathizing with his white supremacy, uh, and smearing American voices uh, advocating intervention on behalf of the persecuted Jews, smearing them as warmongers and claiming that they were tools of international Jewry. Those are historical facts about America in the 1930s. Now, just very quickly, let me run through the list of genuine parallels between Putin and Hitler. Just like Hitler, Putin used the pretext of oppression of minority Russian populations across territorial boundaries to initiate aggression. Just like Hitler, Putin conducts total war with terrorist attacks on civilian populations and infrastructure and scorched earth where he has been forced to retreat. Just like Hitler, Putin requires mobilization, not only to prevail in war, that's the pretext, but perhaps chiefly to consolidate total domestic control, witness poor Navalny's rotting away in the gulag somewhere. Just like Hitler, Putin threatens catastrophe if he loses the war, banking on eventual Western appeasement. Just like Hitler, Putin counts on the lack of sacrificial resolve on the part of the West and cultivates a fifth-column opposition within the West. The most recent example of this is the journalist Seymour Hersh's claim that a secret Norwegian-American covert action blew up the Nord Stream gas lines, a report that's being celebrated in Moscow. Um, I read years ago Seymour Hersh's book, The Dark Side of Camelot, Exposé of JFK, and he can write a very gripping and powerful narrative. But the fact is he plays fast and loose with facts, and, and uh, much of what he's recently claimed about Nord Stream 2 uh, has also been challenged on those grounds. And it's not for us to adjudicate these points. The, the point here is that Putin is cultivating a, a fifth-column opposition with the, in the West. And that brings me, Sarah, to the real parallels to the 1930s, where this crisis strikes home for us Americans theologically. Our American parallel today to the 1930s lies in those figures like Henry Ford and Charles Lindbergh, white supremacists who argued a common racial bond with the German Nazis on the grounds of an America first policy. I find it today particularly appalling that in America, religious conservatives bewitch themselves with a romantic vision of Russian orthodoxy and culture to sympathize with Russia's struggle against the corrupt and satanic West. These people fear gay pride parades more than the parades of Russian missiles on power plants, hospitals, schools, and apartment buildings. That is seriously disordered priorities. And, you know, and it's opting in precisely to this heresy that has been so carefully and um, insightfully called out by Orthodox theologians around the world. They need help in opposing it, not more, not Westerners buying into it in order to fight their own proxy wars, proxy culture wars, I should say, in the U.S. And, you know, also, I just want to add to your political observations then that um, Americans tend to 
remember our involvement in World War One and World War II very fondly, that we were the heroes who came in later and saved the day. But the fact is, until we were involved in both wars, there was very strong opposition to getting involved. We didn't think it was our problem. It was our, you know, a different deployment of the Monroe Doctrine. Like, we're over here in North America. What you guys are doing in Europe is not our problem. And, you know, it took serious effort um, by uh, President Wilson to get Americans finally to commit to um, World War One, And then, of course, it was the bombing of Pearl Harbor that brought us into uh, finally into World War Two, But uh, it, it's a mistake to forget the reluctance there. And again, that kind of isolationist what happens over there doesn't matter policy there. I also think, I mean, <laughs> it's always so risky as as a, a layperson where politics are concerned, but also as a, you know, a, a church leader and a theologian to support violent action. So I, I say this with a great deal of concern, but it looks to me like um, what we have in Putin is is a, a bully who desires destruction for its own sake, which I think is perhaps another parallel to someone like Hitler, who I think also, uh, for whatever he was claiming about Lebensraum for his own race, there was clearly a driving lust for destruction there. And in my experience, um, at least on a smaller scale, bullies are not stopped until you make them stop. And trying to deal with a bully like a rational actor or someone who is capable of caring for others is to fundamentally mistake the nature of a bully. Quite agreed, Sarah. And that that's, that's what has brought us to our wholly unhappy present dilemma, isn't it? I mean, I would accentuate more than you, perhaps, Western arrogance and complacency, along with the naivete that you just uh, drove a nail through, that has brought us to this present dilemma. And I think the dilemma is simply this. If Putin is allowed to prevail in Ukraine or define victory on his own terms, the whole world opens up to nuclear blackmail across the board. And China is given the green light for its oft-announced intention to seize Taiwan. What kind of world is that future going to be like? On the other hand, indefinite funding of Ukrainian resistance, withholding actual uh, NATO American troops on the ground in Ukraine, uh, and we have to, I think, refrain from that in order to avoid an escalation into a nuclear conflict, and just supporting Ukrainian self-defense interminably is going to be accompanied by economic travail creeping risk escalation, and an almost equally uncertain outcome. That's the dilemma that we're in right now. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think a lot of the America first talk or the reluctance to get involved is just an honest wish for it not to be so. <laughs> that what is going on now, just wanting it not to happen and wishing there was some way to just deny it into non-existence. And, you know, we've, uh, the, the whole human problem, <laughs> the uncertainty is that we have to act before we know enough to act. And, you know, what, what parallels do you invoke and what risks do you take? And, you know, when is acting too late and when is inaction actually the best course of action? Um, that's that's the horrible set of things that we're faced here. But it, it does seem to me, again, in my very, very admittedly limited vision that um, 
it doesn't seem to me it's in any way defensible for one nation to invade another, especially with all the reasons that Putin gives for his invasion. They're manifestly false and um, and wicked, cruel and evil. Um, and I think then adding to that the license it gives for parallel actions around the world is very frightening. And I just have to say, as somebody who lives in, also in an island to the east of China, um, the idea of Chinese authorization to go after Taiwan, and for that matter, the fact that recently North Korea seems to think it's fun to launch old nuclear or old bombs somewhere in the vicinity of Japan, the, this, is, this is not a good lookout all around. Yeah, it's a very, very dark world situation that seems to be rising up for us. And it takes courage and faith to face it clearly, uh, squarely, uh, not to evade the problem uh, and to proceed uh, patiently and uh, moderately and measuredly. Uh, um, and that's a very difficult thing. And that's why, you know, we have to uh, pray for uh, our politicians and leaders whom often we excoriate, rightly so, well, richly deserved excoriation of them. Uh, nevertheless, they are now in a situation of, of considerably and very serious uh, responsibility. Uh, I would just like to say on one note, the adventures of um, the uh, neoconservative policies that began uh, with uh, Clinton's uh, bombing of uh, Serbia in the Kosovo affair and continued after 9-11 with the invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq and the destabilization of Libya and the destabilization of Syria. Um, all of these uh, half-assed interventions uh, manifesting or expressing a kind of Western arrogance that we can remake the world in our own image. Um, um, uh, this arrogance also played out in, you know, uh, 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 um, exacerbating Russian paranoia. Uh, and I think we share some measure of guilt, uh, not anything compared to Putin's bullying and murderous behavior. But our arrogance and our complacency, coupled with the naivete, uh, have played a role in, in bringing about this unhappy dilemma. And what we need is a far more penetrating Christian realist critique of the West, which is not masochistic, but actually trying to move us forward in a better way. Yeah. And I, I think, um, you know, as you said, there's a difference between uh, equality and sin and difference and guilt. And I think it's legitimate and, in fact, necessary for a person, a people, a nation to be clear eyed and um, unflinching in its assessment of its own failures. But knowing that you have failed, knowing that you have done wrong, that you do do wrong, does not therefore mean that what anyone else does is better or preferable or justified. And that I think right. is the, the painful realist thing is we can fully and we must fully acknowledge all of our failures, but all of our failures do not add up to Putin's license to claim the immoral and decadent West is is making inroads through Ukraine. Therefore, I am justified in burning Ukraine to the ground and genocidally exterminating its people. That, that does not follow. That's not acceptable. Yeah. 
accept uh, quite agreed. I, I think we conclude, Sarah, this inconclusive uh, podcast because the situation is inconclusive. Uh, but I think we can ask our listeners if they would on this terrible anniversary ask their churches to sing the great litany, uh, which is a prayer uh, for the Lord to have mercy uh, on our world in a very dark uh, state of its uh, history. Yeah. And I think taking the the words of our uh, Orthodox theologians who have spoken up is, yes, let us pray for peace, but let us each look for the ways in which we can also make peace happen. Yes. Thanks, Sarah. Okay. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy.